everyone, and welcome to JCM Prepare the Way. My name is Carol, and I am so glad you're tuning in because we are kicking off today our Revelation series, and today is episode one. Now, if you are not familiar with who JCM is, the name of the ministry is called Jeremiah's Call Ministries, and we're a ministry that is based out of the foothills of Colorado, based off of the Bible verse from Colossians 1.28, which says, Him we preach, warning every man, and teaching every man in all wisdom to present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. We preach, we warn, and we teach, and we do it unapologetically. Our heart behind our ministry is to train people up in the Word of God and help them mature in their faith. Pretty simple, right? Well, if you are just joining us, first time ever on our podcast, welcome, and we hope that you enjoy our podcast. Now, if you are new to this series on Revelation and you didn't tune in when we first recorded it as a video series in 2020 in my backyard because we were all locked down, right? I just want to say up front, especially if you're not familiar with how JCM teaches, that if you are looking for a short and sweet podcast series on Revelation, something that you can easily breeze through quickly, this might not be for you. And number one, I just don't teach that way, especially on biblical topics like this. But I also don't teach in a way that's going to tickle the ears and please people, so to speak. So not only is I, am I not going to try to speed through something, but I may also be bringing up things that challenge your faith and your thinking. So I just wanted to, you know, put that out there and give you that disclaimer so that you know right off the bat what to expect in our time together. So let's start today with an overview. I think that is really, really important for this book. Let me begin by saying that years ago, I began studying this topic and I've been in ministry about 25 plus years. And like many of you digging into rich teachings, reading books, and so many other things, both from mainstream and obscure authors and teachers. And I came to an interesting conclusion. As educated or sometimes quote as spiritual, some of these people appeared to be representing different denominations, sometimes even different periods of time, ages of time. And as respectable as some of them were and are today, they were all saying something different. Has anyone else noticed that? You almost end up more perplexed than when you started because I liked all of the people I was reading or studying or learning from. They were all very well-versed people, but yet they're all still saying this different things. And that to me just was perplexing. Well, a shift took place, a shift that I encourage you to consider. One day I felt a really strong prompting. This was again years ago from the Holy Spirit to just put it all down and sit with my Bible and let him teach me. You know, John in his gospel calls the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth. And he calls him that for a reason, because he will lead us into all truth. He will lead us into the things we are supposed to know and understand. And yes, I've camped on the theological. And yes, I'm tuned into the prophetic significances. I get all that. But I also think it's very important when we read this book that we approach it simply and let the Holy Spirit speak. Because not any one person, my friend, is going to have all the answers. We all still know in part. And that's the way God has left it for now. So Revelation. Leonard Ravenhill once described the book of Revelation as, quote, a book of majesty, a book of mystery, but also a book of misery. 
and how true that statement is. You know, it was the last book admitted into the New Testament, and it comes at the end for a reason. Because in this book, everything from the Bible comes to a head. It comes to a peak. It comes to the finished story. Number one, we know what happens in the world. Number two, we know what happens in the body of Christ. And number three, we know what happens to the wicked. How God has reserved a place for all the spiritual and moral filth in the world. And so this is the last book admitted to the New Testament. And if this book was not here, everything would end at Jude. Have you read Jude? Read Jude. It gives no indication of how this age closes out. So if it ended there, we would all be sitting here scratching our heads wondering, how does it all end? And so it's an important book to read. It not only deals with the last days, but it's the end of time. And it's not only the end of time, but it reveals the beginning of eternity. And that's what we're all living for, right? It's a book that was written to show us how it ends up, but also to prepare us for the things to come before that happens so that we are ready to endure and overcome everything that's going to culminate at the end of the age. Now, the proper name for the book isn't, quote, revelation, even though it's what most of us say, but, quote, the revelation of Jesus Christ. So make note of that. And that word revelation is actually a Greek word that means an uncovering, an unveiling, or a disclosure. In the New Testament, this word describes things like the unveiling of the spiritual, or the revealing of the sons of God, or Christ's incarnation and his glorious appearing at his second coming. In all of its uses, revelation refers to something or someone that was once hidden becoming visible. That's really important to wrap your head around as you read this book. Because what this book reveals or unveils is Jesus Christ in glory. Truths about him in his glorified state and details about his final victory that the rest of scripture merely allude to become clearly visible through this revelation. And this revelation was given to him by God the Father. And it was communicated to the Apostle John by an angel. Now what you may come across, so it's really important just to understand what that word revelation means, but now what you may come across in discussions about this book with other people is that there are two types of thought. Number one, there are going to be the people that cannot get into this book. There's a fear. It comes across to them as a very intimidating book. There's a lot of judgment, right? There's a lot of, uh, the reason why I think a lot of people are intimidated, there's a lot of symbolism. There's a lot of imagery and pictures of things that we just can't wrap our head around. There's a dragon. There's a beast. There are events that scare people. And so they avoid the book. Or you have people that approach it where you can't get them out of it, especially as it pertains in wanting to know the future. And that's the main reason I think why a lot of people want to read this book. They want to understand the schedule of future events. Is there a rapture, a taking away of believers one day? And when? Is it before seven years of tribulation, mid-tribulation, after tribulation? That's a big one. When is the tribulation expected to begin? What is the tribulation? 
What is the mark of the beast? Who is the Antichrist? What's going to happen upon the earth? And so on and so forth. And so I want to encourage you that rather than take maybe either one of those positions, maybe ask yourself this instead. What was Jesus trying to inspire in the people in the age in which this book was written? What was Jesus trying to inspire in the people in the age in which this book was written? And then how can we take that and apply it to the age that we're in now? That's what we want to find out. And so we're going to be talking about when was this book written? Why was this book written? Who was it written for? And how was it written? That's what we want to get into. Now, let me say this, that it's important to note that this book is written in the same type of format as Paul and John and and Peter wrote. It's a letter. So that's something to kind of get your head around too. It's a letter. And within this letter are seven other letters that are given to a province in Asia. Now, Asia in the Bible is Southwest Turkey. And these particular seven letters that are within this larger letter are for seven churches in this area. So we're familiar with reading Paul's letters and Peter's and John's, right? In the New Testament, all the epistles, we love reading those. But somehow we get to the book of Revelation or the revelation of Jesus Christ, and the whole concept of a letter just goes right out the window. And we have a hard time getting our head around this letter, this larger, this larger letter. So let's start again. It's a letter and that within it are seven others. And this letter was written at the end of the first century AD. Okay. The Romans are still in power and ruling then. Now at this point in history, you have got a growing number of first century Christians that God is counting on to pass on the gospel in an environment that is very hostile to it. So they were to pass on the Christian way of living, which in the book of Acts is called the way. And they were to pass on this Christian way of living and keep passing on the gospel in the end of the first century. And the New Testament letters or epistles and many other letters written by early church fathers, um, such as Polycarp and Ignatius and people like that, whom became martyrs, they actually share how to live Christ-like even amongst enemies of Christ. And so the letters that we read in the New Testament, the letters that are written by other church fathers and martyrs are filled with encouragement and correction at times, but also very sound teaching because these people are the ones that are carrying the torch, so to speak, trying to pass this message on to the generations that are coming after them. And God is watching the situation closely, as you'll see when we get to the letters of the churches. There are things that these people need to course correct on. And then there are ways that he's also going to encourage them so that they will still be able to carry this message forward into all the world. Because if Jesus can get these churches to a point where they will be able to have courage, stand, remain holy, and then committed to him, then there's a good chance that they will be able to endure what is going to come to them while they are moving the gospel forward. And if that happens, if they succeed in that, despite persecution, despite poverty and poverty and much more, then the church will be unstoppable. So this was a very critical time 
to get this major letter out, the letter of Revelation, but also these seven letters that are within it. It was a very important time to get these out to the churches and to be read. And why these particular churches? Because they were strategically located. And you're going to learn more about the significance of their location in future podcasts. Ephesus, for example, was one of the most important locations because everything had to come through Ephesus. In fact, we know more about the church in Ephesus than we do any other church in the Bible. And again, we'll get to that. But Ephesus, it's important to note, was a major port city and trade route. And this trade route had a road. Um, This trade route was a road, actually, that would split. And when people came through Ephesus and they would be on this road and it would split, it would either take travelers over into Asia or down into Africa. And Ephesus was this point where it would split. And so there would always be a lot of people traveling through that area, moving on through to other parts of the world. Not only that, but because of this, it was an intersection for paganism. You had the influence of the Greek and Roman pantheon, which was all the gods of Roman Greece and all the other pagan gods that would flow through here. You had all of the, of course, the traders with all of their wares and all of the things that they were selling. So this became a huge intersection point for history. And so this region was an important place for a lot of people. That's why Paul had churches established there. Now, as believers, you know, we tend to run from places. (laughs) We run from cities. We run from different environments when they grow darker and darker, right? We're not quite sure how to evangelize in a place like that. Well, Paul was a little different. He was sending people into those places. You know, keep in mind, there was no Christianity in any of these seven cities we're going to talk about. In this region, Paul and all of the people trained up under them were the ones being sent in as to break through. They were like the pioneers of this. They knew what this region was like. They could see it with their own eyes, the paganism, the moral depravity, the wickedness, which was all the more reason why the gospel was needed. And I think about that even for my own city here, all the more reason to stay planted and keep bringing the gospel in. Now, most of the people that lived in this area, two-thirds of them actually, were slaves. It's important to understand that the wealthy at that time had what is referred to as a Greek mindset. They lived a Greek way of life, which is a mindset that focuses a lot on leisure, free time, retirement, sport. They were big on all kinds of entertainment and especially theater. And so to have a leisurely life meant you needed slaves. That's why slaves were always coming into the seaports and such. They bought slaves from all these other countries and brought them in to do all the work for them in their homes and on their property so that they could live their leisurely life. So there were a lot of slaves. And some, some slaves were treated well and some were treated poorly. So knowing this, who would Jesus be writing these letters to? Well, we already mentioned that there were seven little churches. And these churches are not like churches you picture in your brain. These are little house churches. They were established in the middle of this area of wealth and paganism. And a majority of the people that attended these churches were slaves. You know, I just love how Jesus, he always uses the simple things of the world to confound the wise, doesn't he? And he wrote this letter of revelation and then these seven specific letters to little house churches 
And he wrote him in a way that would be simple enough for them to understand. And I know you're probably thinking, I don't think Revelation is that simple. Well, when we go through it, I think you might just see the simplicity of it. And so again, he's not out to confuse people. He, he's preparing the second and third generation believers to stand. He wants the gospel to go forward. And he's expected, he's expecting this first generation to be those torchbearers to pass the message on. And you know, when I realized that and you start thinking about his audience, I was always convinced for years that this book had to be interpreted through the minds of intellectuals and scholars, but that's not true. The recipients of these letters were common, everyday people, many of whom were uneducated and poor. And if these people were expected to understand this letter, the revelation of Jesus Christ, then why would we be any different in that? You know, these courageous believers, they lived among much darkness, and they were going to find themselves against some incredible opposition, as you'll soon see. If they could read and understand, or if they could hear and understand, this is what's going to come against you. These are the things that are going to happen to you. This is what you need to work out within and among yourselves to be able to endure. Then they could prepare And then in order to prepare, they would be able to endure. And if they could endure, they could overcome. That's why they always say, he who has an ear, let him hear. Because once that letter was read, there was an expectation to heed and obey the words of the letter. Don't forget, friends, we love to use that quote from scripture, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, right? Well, if he spoke plainly to the people in the Gospels, and he is still the same yesterday, today, and forever, then that means he's speaking plainly in the book of Revelation. We may not understand it all yet, but he's still speaking plainly. He's just using more symbolism and imagery to portray incredible spiritual things, heavenly things, that will reveal themselves in the last days. And since we can't see beyond the veil into that world, we just need to try to come at this letter from a very simple perspective and a simple faith. And that's how we're going to approach this whole series. We're going to present it simply. And so I think the easiest way to begin is to ask yourself a question. Why did God want this book in the Bible? Many people are focused on future events when they read this or the future scheduling of Jesus Christ and in the end days. And I think they miss the key takeaway of the whole letter, that this book, This letter is actually a manual for martyrdom. So keep that very important point in mind as we go through this whole podcast together. Which brings me to something very important, something I want you to notice right off the bat. Notice that it is the only book in the New Testament that begins with a blessing and ends with a curse, which is something we should definitely be paying attention to. In chapter 1, verse 3, it says, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. So we are blessed if we read it and we hear it and we keep it. Blessed is he who reads. That word actually means to read aloud. 
This book is meant to be read aloud because the people have to hear the words. This book was going to be a blessing to those who read it and to those who hear it, who hear the words of the prophecy and those who keep the things which were written in it. So maybe, church, it's time for us to start reading this book out loud to ourselves, to our families, to our children, in our Bible studies. If you want a Bible study to do, read Revelation out loud together and be blessed. How about in our churches or on your vacation or on the beach? It doesn't really matter where. Just read this book out loud. Let the words travel by the Spirit of God and let people hear what the Spirit of God is saying and then be blessed. Even if you don't understand this book, read it and receive a blessing. Now let's read the curse. And it's found in Revelation 22, verse 18, the very last chapter. For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. Here again, someone has to be reading it out loud. Okay, so I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book of the prophecy... God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, which we're going to get to, and from the things that are written in the book. So let me read that again. If anyone takes away from the words of this book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life. Ponder this curse seriously, my friends. What is Jesus saying here? The book of life, isn't that where all of our names, the names of believers are written? And yet it is clearly stated here that names can be removed from the book of life. That should make us take our faith journey, our pilgrimage here, very seriously. And these are the types of things we are going to discuss in this series, because this is going to come up again. The, the, the reality that we could have our name removed from the book of life. So I want to close with this. In studying church history, we've learned that there were very key players in our church history centuries way back, right? People like Martin Luther and Calvin and many others. And people whose beliefs and practices are still influencing the body of Christ today. They're still, uh, churches are even built on their beliefs. And yet many of these people either did not read, study, or believe in the revelation of Jesus Christ. Martin Luther believed in the apocalyptic and prophetic words of it, but he never preached on this book. And Protestantism came from Luther, which is perhaps the reason why so very little Protestant pastors teach on it today also. Have you ever thought about that? Calvin wrote commentaries for every book in the New Testament except the book of Revelation. History records he didn't believe in it. How many Calvinists or even offshoots of Calvinism are there today and still no teaching on this topic? And there's a lot of other church fathers that many people highly regard that actually brought in destructive doctrine concerning this book, which we'll learn about later. So if you're wondering why your preacher or your teacher or whomever isn't preaching or teaching on Bible prophecy or the book of Revelation, it could be because of beliefs that have been passed on over the ages adopted then into the seminaries, and now filtering down into our churches. 
And that's common knowledge. That's not any speculation on my part. The world, and what's, what's, I think what makes me think of that is because the world around us is unraveling. And pulpits are silent on the matter of prophecy and revelation. We are silent on birth pangs. We are silent on Matthew 24. We are silent on these things, which is why I believe so many of you out there are now looking elsewhere to find answers, especially on the book of Revelation. I discovered many years ago, it's very important for believers to understand whose belief the person we sit under is following. Because most people that we sit under, my friends, they build their theology on someone else, not just scriptures. And I know that firsthand working inside a couple of large churches. So I encourage you to do some digging into that on your own. Don't take my word for it. It's time, my friends, as we close this out, it's time for us to understand Jesus and his end time purpose. And I think when we commit ourselves to growing in this knowledge, we gain understanding in what Jesus is doing to prepare us for that end time purpose. He wants us to be prepared. He wants us to endure and he wants us to overcome. He is for us. And so I want to close with this last statement from chapter one that the revelation of this book was given by God the Father to his son Jesus to show his servants, which includes us, things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John. Let me say that again. The Father gave this revelation to Jesus Christ, his son, and then sent it by his angel through the servant John. Welcome to the series on Revelation. God bless you.